Non-rock-a-boatus must stop. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to sink it. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? Brett, delusional. Delusional is okay in your worldview. I'm an animal. You don't chastise chickens for being delusional. You don't chastise pigs for being delusional. So you calling me delusional using your worldview is perfectly okay. It doesn't really hurt. <laughs> she hung up on me. Yeah! Yeah! What? What? Desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. Go into all the world and make disciples. Not go into the world and make buddies. Not to make brosives. Right. Don't go in the world and make homies. Right. Disciples. Well, I, yeah. got, I got a bit of a jiggle neck. <laughs> That's a joke, Pastor. When we have the real message of truth, we cannot let somebody say they're speaking truth when yeah. they're not. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Apologia Radio. Welcome back, everybody. This is the gospel heard around the world. I am Pastor Jeff Durbin. They call me the Ninja. And uh, let's see what he's going to set here. Sorry, I'm just trying to get back in the swing of things here. You know what it is? It's the Mac. That's what it is. I'm going to blame it on the Mac. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, back from our missions trip, we had to the Republic of Ireland, um, Northern Ireland, Scotland for end abortion now. Some amazing things happened there. We are so excited to share with you. We will share all that information with you guys. Probably in the next episode, Pastor Luke and I will uh, just be in prayer for people of God uh, in the UK, in the Republic, all the work that we're doing there. God has done some amazing things to raise up churches now to bring the gospel into conflict with the issue of abortion uh, over against some of the common practices and methodologies of the typical pro-life kind of neutral perspective. God's raising up the churches to actually engage this issue, standing on the Word of God. So powerful stuff happening, very humbling, very sobering to see what God has done through the work of End Abortion Now. And I want to just at least say this now. I've been wanting to make sure I say this publicly. Um, You'll understand more why I'm saying what I'm saying when we get a chance to share the full details as to what the Lord is doing through our ministry in those places. Uh, But I wanted to say a, a real genuine thank you to everybody who gave towards the work of end abortion now not this not just this past year but also the previous years there were things happening through our work even not just in our own country but especially over there is is what i'm pointing out now that we weren't even really aware of that 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 god was really pulling together uh and it's brought a lot of fruit and the result of it um lord willing but the way that everything's happening right now will be so many lives saved and transformed because of of this mission and none of that would have been possible without your help without your giving so thank you guys very very much i am in the studio today you see once again with pastor james white elder at apologia church and dr james white uh you know him from alpha omega ministries aomin min.org is where you go for the website and Alpha and Omega Ministries on YouTube and on Facebook. That's where you guys can go to get all the past dividing lines, Radio Free Geneva's, all the teaching, everything going on there. Um, lots of stuff happening in the world right now. Maybe spend, maybe this has been two, two minutes sort of on maybe encouraging <laughs> stuff uh, that we should talk about related to what's happening in the world today. Well, um, 
we're we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's uh, that's that's the greatest peace a person can have. And uh, there are a lot of people I would not want to be facing uh, the uh, the panic out there right now uh, if I didn't have a, a solid foundation and a and a, uh, a confidence in the future and that God is still on His throne. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to be a a humanist or something right now uh right. facing this kind of stuff mm -hmm. i mean i guess you can sort of start to understand some of the some of the panic that you're seeing That's uh, right. people doing just really stupid things and i i have a feeling that six months from now we're gonna look back at this and go wow um but uh unfortunately the technology that creates things like this um exists and um mm -hmm. i think um <sighs> future is an interesting uh, thing to consider. Yeah, you think about just in the last day or a couple days, you got Italy completely on lockdown. Uh, last night, the president announced that he's going to stop all flights right. coming in from Europe. That's a very big deal for 30 days. Uh, sad for anybody that's there on vacation right now that's from kidding. the States. Yeah. Uh, and then you've also got last night, as soon as that announcement is made, I think sh within minutes it seemed like the NBA announced suspension of their season. Mm -hmm. And then this morning I said the NHL is suspending their season. Uh, so it's it's interesting. And then, of course, we have the, the governor of uh, Kentucky told the mm -hmm. churches uh, it'd be best not to meet. And then you had in Washington State yeah. an actual threat made right. uh, to the churches. Essentially, if they gather for worship, there's the militia, the National Guard. You'll be criminally prosecuted uh, meeting for worship. But I think the number is over 100 people. Or, uh, maybe I'm incorrect it on that. It might have been 250. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, Somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. So, yeah, the government telling the church not to meet for worship as a result of coronavirus fears. So... Uh, I guess the thing I would like to say is the encouragement towards us as believers is that we know the sovereign God who's in control of even the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have, a, I have this deep down sense, this belief that all image bearers of God know God. Truly, there's just a suppression of truth going on. There's a worshiping of something else in God's place. But I think we all have a sense of the judgment that's ahead of us and God's hand of judgment and justice. And so I think in moments like this, even even the atheist sort of, you know how people like so like the, the they what are the people preppers? You know they're they're prepping, they're prepping, they're prepping. Like you know things are going to fall apart. I think it's because they know they have the sense. There's it may, and I know this gets distorted and it's messed up and it gets perverse at times. But I think we all know as image bearers of God that God is a just God and this is a fallen world and there's judgment and there's the justice of God and there's God's disciplining hand and those sorts of things. And I think people are sort of like waiting for that opportunity to sort of just like unleash it. Like, yeah, oh, and the sky is falling. And the well, the sky is falling, but unfortunately, uh, so many people today are just completely disconnected from any gospel presentation. So they, they, you know, they think they're just an accident and this is just, you know, this accident of life is going to get accidentally wiped out by something we can't even face or it's, it's nameless. And so it's, it's really, they're looking for hope and they don't have any hope because mm -hmm. because secularism doesn't offer any hope. I was listening to someone that hopefully Lord willing, uh, you and I will have the opportunity of uh, engaging in a few weeks. Maybe we'll see, we'll see if that, uh, actually if that ends, ends up, ends up happening. Um, but uh, I was listening to uh, a, a secular humanist. I know he calls himself a religious humanist. Um, and, you know, talking about, you know, wanting to do good and be the best person you can be and all the rest of this stuff. And I was just sitting there going, yeah, but when the rubber meets the road and the coronavirus comes, um, what, 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 what does any of this actually end up meaning? There's, you've, you've lost all connection with the transcendent. You've lost all connection with 
creation and intentionality and, and order and design and everything else. It's just, mm. what do you, what do you have left? You mm. can tell people to be good, but what's that even mean? What's, you know, one, why? when you're, when you're fighting for the last uh, pack of toilet paper, uh, are you going <laughs> to, are you really going to be, uh, going to be good is the, is the question. Yeah. So. I was, I, I am surprised, very surprised that, uh, in a, in a crisis situation like this, that, human beings are more concerned with their behinds than they are their bellies. Uh, it's amazing to me that like, we've got to get that toilet paper, make sure I die, you know, in a, in a good place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't understand any of it. Um, and like I said, I, I, I imagine by uh, uh, late April, early May, we're going to be uh, on the other side of it going, wow, did we overreact? But look, I, look, I understand, uh, you know, my, my dad's elderly and anybody who's doing chemotherapy or anything like this, this stuff's bad stuff. Right. But there are still things out there that are worse that are still out there and, and can, and are even more. We don't pay attention uh, to them. And we just don't. Yeah. So what has happened to, to, there's something else going social on. Social media. Here. There's something else helps. going on here. There's, helps. Social media really helps the panic. But, you know, things like hepatitis and meningitis, that stuff's still out there, and it's mm -hmm. even more deadly by mm -hmm. a long shot. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't have this kind of panic. You don't have the NBA canceling things and mm -hmm. everything else. Um, and I think it's the newness of it, but there's just something else going on. It's there's Well, there's also, I mentioned, because people probably want to uh, be there for it, mentioned the debate possibilities we have in right. Utah, Mormon mm -hmm. General Conference, canceled. That is Not canceled, but now it's virtual. Virtual. So no one's showing up, mm -hmm. which and is a bummer for Southern, us. Southern Seminary has gone to virtual classes, and uh, all the students have to leave campus by Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the governor of Kentucky called to to, to ask for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, <sighs> why? Why? Uh, yeah. Well, that's a this is a whole show in itself. We'll, we'll get it to is. That. It is. We it have is. to do a second response. We do. Uh, part well, two. Continuation. A continuation. Part two. Uh, to uh, Trent Horn. Uh, Trent Horn. Uh, Without an E. That's right, without an E. I was <laughs> making sure I had that right, actually. Uh, Trent Horn uh, actually did a response to a standalone message that I did at Apologia Church uh, within the last two months on Sola Scriptura. We had a little space between um, our old series and, and our new series, uh, so we did some, some stuff for the life and health of our body. And so one of those messages was a Sola Scriptura, so it was a one a uh, one-time message, uh, not uh, not extensive, uh, just more dealing with uh, foundational issues mm -hmm. in it. And he did a response or a rebuttal to the Sola Scriptura message that I did. So we did our part one response to him uh, before we left for the UK, mm -hmm. and now we're back. So we're going to do the part two right now and try to get through all that he did. Uh, it seems, I, if I recollect, this first one is a little longer clip, but I think the rest of them are fairly short clips. So we should be able to get through this today, what we need to get through well, it today. Well, we need to, yeah. And yeah. and if one of those is the Apocrypha thing, we I did that on the dividing line. Yeah, so maybe we could just do a quick yeah. quick burst, point right. to that, and right. uh, we'll get to it. So I'm uh, actually very thankful that Trent did this because it provides a great opportunity for discourse and to engage on what are really vitally important issues. And I just want to say, when it, when it, this is very important because this goes out across the internet, thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people maybe see this. It's important for us to, to stress that there are foundational issues, there are central core issues, and then there are issues that are adiaphora. There are things that, that we ought not divide over, cut each other's throats over. Um, the, you know, you did a great show yesterday responding to um, uh, Hank Hennegraaff and right. his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. 
And some of the things that he said, I, I, I was listening to that this morning, actually. I listened to it twice, actually. But the, the thing I thought was really good was the portion of yesterday where you said, look, it's not the bells and the smells that are the fundamental issues. That might be strange to you as an evangelical, right. as a Protestant, but that's, those aren't the main issues. No. You know, that, that, that's not what you want to really die on. Mm. It's, it's the core issues of, like, authority. Uh, Sola Scriptura is there. Nature of tradition, the very source of your understanding of the gospel, the application of the gospel. Yeah, right. it's, these are the foundational things. And unfortunately, a lot of people um, in our modern day are uh, Protestants of... Uh, convenience and mm -hmm. Protestants of taste. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, especially in regards to Roman Catholicism, that was specifically in regards to Eastern Orthodoxy, but uh, many of the issues end up being the same when it comes to this particular subject. Um, they don't know what the, real, what the real convictional, foundational issues are. And so when they discover that, oh, that one little practice over there, well, that's not all that important. That's not all that definitional. Um, I'm going to be doing a program, hopefully, with a uh, apologist uh, who was on with a Roman Catholic. And I was just stunned at, at, at how uh, the Protestant did not understand what his history was. He, had, he did that. not know any, had, had no idea why right. he believed the things that he believed. And, and so it was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. And these are, these are things that the Reformation actually was, was fought over. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, every, every generation has to be reminded of what these things are. And Sola Scriptura, look, it... it it doesn't matter what group you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. This is always the foundational this issue. This is core. And people on our side, I'm glad to hear, you know, entire conferences being done on the sufficiency of Scripture and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But the reality is, until you take that outside of our narrow confines and our little group and start butting heads with people who are saying, no, that's not true, mm -hmm. you're never really going to see how important it really is and probably not really get to the point of being able to really explain it to anybody else mm -hmm. why it is as important as it is yeah i stress a lot of times to our body that god has given us uh care over um that this you talk about issues that matter that you got to be willing to just die over um and sola scriptura i believe is one mm -hmm. uh the trinity uh how a person is made right with god the, these are core issues that you should yeah resurrection you should be willing to lose your life over right. that, that you die for these issues other issues you know um uh, even the bells and the smells kind of things mm -hmm. like no i don't want to be burned at a stake for that no thanks um, right. because that's not a core issue um but this is it and is. i'm really glad that trent uh actually did the response it gives us an opportunity to actually engage this out in the public square right making sure that people can understand these are core if i recall correctly i think did he not already do a response to the first part or at least i haven't i've been gone so uh, okay yeah I, I may have seen something either that or made some reference to it i'm i'm, I'm not sure but, you know, it, it is interesting. We, we need to emphasize that in, in the last program, one of the things that we pushed was that, that sola scriptura is not just simply a doctrine amongst other doctrines. It is an assertion concerning the nature of Scripture. That's right. Uh, and when we talk about Scripture being theonustos, we're not just simply trying to fill time. We're literally talking about the fact there's nothing else that is. Mm -hmm. The church possesses one thing that is theonustos, and that is Scripture. The church's traditions are not Scripture. Uh, they are not, they're not, they honest us, they're not revealed by God. And I think the greatest way you can communicate that, I mean, that needs to be explained just in, you know, like the sermon you did, that needs to be laid out there. But the way it's going to get through to people is by how we handle the Word of God week in, week out in the ministry of the Word. That's right. So how you and I preach, um, how all the, everyone who preaches at, at Apologia, um, 
by showing that honor for that word and seeking to handle it aright and to utilizing consistent hermeneutics and exegesis. This is something you do not see in Roman Catholicism. When you go from, from parish to parish, you will get such a massively wide um, range of interpretations of the Bible. Because none of them, you know, it's like, well, has Rome infallibly interpreted that for you? Well, no. So it's just all opinion anyways. So, mm-hmm. hey, you can get people quoting origin and this, that, and the other thing, get all sorts of weird, wacky, strange stuff. Um, one of the things I really uh, enjoy is that when I travel and I visit churches around the world, that's what unites us together. Those of us that have the same convictions is that we handle the word in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what you see within Roman Catholicism mm-hmm. at all, at all. So this seems to be a core thing, and maybe we could lay this down to be helpful for viewers <clears throat> to sort of get, um, to put a pin in what's the main issue here. It seemed to be coming up with Trent, and I think we're going to hear it in these. Um, he, he seems to think that his objection to Sola Scriptura, uh, when he says uh, there was a time where Scripture, Revelation was right. being given and it wasn't written down, is a very powerful objection to Sola Scriptura, right. and it isn't. No at all, which I think we talked about this last time, shows that he doesn't seem to really have any really good interaction with Reformed people, exegetes, uh, uh, people who are dealing with Reformed epistemology on this issue throughout, you know, the hundreds of years uh, that this interaction has really been, you know, up in front and center. Uh, so we should stress that. Sola Scriptura is, is there's, there's an epistemological core to Sola Scriptura. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the nature of Scripture um, and the origin of Scripture. What is the nature of Scripture is it's the anustos. Uh, the origin of Scripture is the Holy Spirit of God uh, carried people along to write what they wrote, to say what they said. So Sola Scriptura is not a denial that there, was, there were times where Scripture wasn't there. New Testament revelation hadn't been written down and recorded yet. And yes, we recognize that what is coming out of an inspired apostle at, by revelation mm-hmm. is the revelation of God, is God-breathed. Uh, but he seems to think it's a really strong objection right. to Sola Scriptura to say that there was a time where Paul was teaching and preaching and nothing was written down. Not recognizing that time has changed. Exactly. Sola Scriptura. We're, we're, we're not in that, we in, in that condition We all of that. Yeah. So, so can you just, just give me 30 seconds on that? That, that issue of uh, now what do we have? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a straightforward question. The, 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 it's, the, it's the question that I asked Mitch Pacwa in 1999. Um, in uh, San Diego in our debate, and that is, can you show me anything that Jesus ever said that has been infallibly defined by the Roman Catholic Church that does not exist in Scripture? Any mm-hmm. word? And he goes, no. How about any of the apostles? Is there, is there anything any of the apostles taught that has been infallibly defined by the Roman Catholic Church uh, that is not found in Scripture? He said, no. Mm-hmm. So the, if, if you want to talk about being apostolic, if you want to believe, believe in apostolic succession, apostolic authority, the only thing that we have that comes from the apostles is what's in Scripture. And both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics say, no, our traditions, and especially in Eastern Orthodoxy, this becomes even more elevated. In Roman Catholicism, it more, more becomes the substance of oral tradition. Uh, but still, that's what becomes the basis of dogmas that are defined about Mary at a later point in time or about the function of the church and the elevation of offices in the church. That There's no evidence that anybody in the New Testament believed these things. Um, but their idea is uh, sacred tradition, capital S, capital T, sacred tradition is made up of what's in Scripture, the written tradition, and then the oral tradition. And this oral tradition goes back to the apostles, but cannot be traced mm-hmm. 
to them outside of the the acceptance of the authority of the authority of uh, exactly exactly Exactly. so you you often say sola ecclesia yeah that's uh the church alone versus sola scriptura right and and they 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 object to that on on this but no 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 we believe in in the magisterium of the church and the tradition and and sacred tradition is made up of you know you've got this three-legged stool you've got you've got scripture and you've you've got tradition you've got the magisterium and stuff like that uh the problem is that when we ask what is tradition so uh, I, I learned this very early on when I was debating Jerry Mattatix. I would quote an early church father in, in, in contradiction to what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And he would say, but that's not tradition. Well, you quoted from the same early church father I did. Mm-hmm. The church gets to determine what is and what is not sacred tradition. Right. So the church defines what tradition is and what tradition says. The church defines what scripture is and what scripture says. And if you define all those things, you're not under the authority of those things because you're defining what they say and cannot say and what they are and cannot be. So mm-hmm. you're the ultimate authority. That's solo, that's solo Ecclesia. Mm-hmm. And people, unfortunately, 99% of the time in discussions on Sola Scriptura, that element is left out. So you, do, you don't have an even conversation. You have uh, standards being applied to Scripture, and you're supposed to back all that stuff up. Mm-hmm. But then they never let it be turned around, and you go, okay, now let's let's look at your claims. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's today. You want it? You want to tell me that you need to have uh, an infallible interpreter? Let's talk about Francis. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, how you can know what Fran. How can you even know what Francis is teaching? Today? You start to see where it's leaking. Oh, it's with, it's with Francis. Right now, it's not leaking. <laughs> it's gushing. It's, 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 it fell over. We're we're, ta- <laughs> we're talking submarining here. Okay, so I mean, screen door on the sub situation. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's a good screen door on the sub. That's <laughs> yeah. perfect. So it, th- this is important too because we want this to be a helpful, useful tool for Christians and also even for Roman Catholics or anybody else who would have a different right. uh, standpoint in terms of knowledge. How how do you know something to be true? This is a, this is actually a very important issue, and and when we're talking about the Bible, God's revelation, we're talking about something that is self-attesting. We're talking about something that is transcendent, um, and it's important to, for people to recognize. Not to get into a big long discussion of epistemology right now, but epistemolo- epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do you know something to be true? And this is important because this is not just a discussion happening between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, evangelicalism. This is discussed in the history of the world, philosophy. You, you Name your famous philosophers. Epistemology is the core issue. How do I know something to be true? And when you're dealing with someone even today like Richard Dawkins and his worldview, it's an epistemological collision. How do I know this to be true? So we're talking about fundamental issues and... This is important. When you say, uh, when you ask somebody a question, how do, how do you know that? How, how do you know that to be true? Uh, and then the person says, well, I know it because the word of God. Um, that, that's an epistemological claim. Mm-hmm. That's God has spoken, and therefore, that's how I have certainty. I know because here's what God says. When you're, when you're dealing with this issue with, with Rome and its claims of knowledge, they'll say that this is the word of God. This has ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. But when you start to get down the line and trace that out and actually start getting it into conflict, you're going to find that really the epistemological core is in the church. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the church has said so. All right. And and so what happens there is that they'll say, yes, God has authority, but ultimately when there's any questions of knowledge and certainty, when knowledge claims are made, it doesn't go back to Scripture. No. It goes back to the claims of the church. Now, here's now look. I don't want to be offensive to Trent because I'm not putting Trent in the same category as Mormonism in terms of their denial of the Trinity and all right. the mess. 
because <clears throat> Trent affirms the Trinity. Uh, praise God, that's orthodox, that's biblical, all those things. We could have a real discussion as to why, why? that's where it, the issue That's is. the core, that's exactly my right, point. Right. But it's important to note that whether it's Mormonism, whether it's the Watchtower, you name the group that arises that gives the passing nod to, that's the word of God. Ultimately, we all know when you trace it out, you find out where it falls apart is that they don't really believe that it has ultimate self-attesting authority. It's because Joseph says. It's mm -hmm. because Brigham says, Orson Pratt, Orson Hyde, Joseph Fielding Smith. It's because Charles Taze Russell says. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, it's sola ecclesia in a sense for them too, and there's different ways that works out. But the issue comes down to authority. What is the foundation of certainty? And I, and I think we can spend lots of, times on the, of time on this throughout Scripture. The core is the Word of God is the revelation. Everything's to be tested by. It's the reference point. And so even the church has to fall back to the reference point. The church has no right to say, because by authoritative decree, right. I say. And it's, it, we're going to get to this, and we'll jump right into the, this now. The church is the bride of Christ needs to hear the voice of Christ in his word. And, yes. and if, that, if, she, if she is deprived of that, even by her own theology, she ends up in a monologue. Yeah. But I do need to just very quickly, and we'll go straight to the clip, need to emphasize the reality of the fact that to say everything you just said is to have a much higher view of Scripture than is currently prevalent either in the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church or in the broad spectrum of what's called Protestantism as well. Yeah. So one of the reasons that most of this conflict from the time of the Reformation has now passed as far as um, anyone really engaging this is because on both sides, that high view of scripture has collapsed. Yeah. And so I, I, there is, I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt, I hold a significantly higher view of scripture than Francis does. Mm -hmm. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts, Trent Horn holds a significantly higher oh, view I believe of that. scripture yeah. than the current Pope does. Yeah. Um, because Trent has not been infected by liberation theology from South America and all the rest of the stuff that comes with that. So here you have this strange situation of someone who is under the authority, the, the, the infallible interpretational authority of someone who actually has a lower view of scripture than they themselves have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's something I would invite Trent to think about too. Yeah, yeah. So here we go. Uh, this We're going right into part six or clip six I have lined up here. And uh, we'll do our best to, to get through all of this today for everybody. Now, just a quick side, and we're going to get right to the text here, and we're going to do a brief. I don't have a lot of verses to give to you today. It's, it's, chip, it's chip message, Jeff. But just as a That's, I hate that. Trent, <laughs> you, you already have a leg up on me because I sound like a madman. <laughs> to answer some questions, the church did not create the canon of Scripture by authoritative declaration. This is important. I know I don't have time to develop this a lot today. I just need to say it in the discussion of Sola Scriptura because it does come up. People talk about Sola Scriptura. Well, you don't have the Scriptures except for the church telling you what the Bible is. By the way, that is fallacious and not true. That's not how we know what the Bible is or have the Bible. The church didn't create the canon of Scripture by authoritative declaration. I don't believe in these 66 books because the church made an authoritative declaration. Here's your Bible. You believe that. We've created the Word of God. That's not how it happened historically. That's not what it looked like. Here's the truth. The Word of God created the church. The Word of God created and formed the church. Note the equivocation. Do you mean the Bible made the church, 
because that doesn't make sense. The church came into existence at Pentecost before any single document of the New Testament was written. The church existed for 20 years without any documents of the New Testament. Even when you get to the end of the first century, you have all the documents are written, but you don't have anywhere near a universal consensus as to which written documents alone constitute the canon of Scripture. As I, Okay, uh, before I forget that, um, if that standard is held onto, if you do not, if, if you, you need to have a unanimous consensus, uh, you could make an argument even today that that doesn't exist. But even from the Roman Catholic perspective, the infallible ecumenical definition from Rome's view of the canon, inclusive of the Old Testament, is found at the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Okay, so April of 1546. So you, you don't have scripture functioning until April of 1546? Obviously, clearly, no. So the idea of unanimity of opinion is not, is not even gonna be close to the issue. Right. But secondly, notice the real equivocation here is you're talking about the word of God and we believe that the church was under the authority of the word of God from the beginning. Mm -hmm. He immediately switches to the New Testament because he has to. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the New Testament apostles, quote, from the written scriptures right. in instructing the church as to how the church is to behave over and over and over and over again, called the Greek Septuagint. Mm -hmm. And so the church has always had divine written revelation so that she understood when it says the scriptures say, she wasn't going, what scriptures are that? Mm -hmm. Now, once again, there is a period of time where you have inscripturation taking place it's almost identical to the time period that you had in the Old Testament. In other words, Malachi finishes about 400 years before Christ. 200 years before Christ, we have all the scriptures that we consider the Old Testament, the Tanakh, laid up in the temple. Same thing happens with the New Testament, the, the Muratorian fragments around 187, so about 200 years yeah. after the birth of Christ, you have the vast majority of the New Testament writings represented therein. There's, there's never any question about the Gospels or the Pauline corpus, really, mm -hmm. though there are some of the minor books are, are discussed, uh, you know, and whether Hebrews is Pauline and, and things like that. But the point is you have a very close parallel between the two. And if you didn't need to have some type of an infallible council to give you to the Tanakh before the days of Jesus, because... Jesus has conversations with people and none of them are ever about what is the canon of scripture. Right. He quotes from the scripture, holds men accountable to it. It was an organic process. It was an organic process within the people of God. Right. You have the same thing happening uh, in the same time period and you don't need to have the Council of Trent. You don't need to, ha you don't need to grant to um, the councils at the end of the fourth century, Hippo and Carthage, some type of ecumenical authority uh, because scripture was never subjugated to that kind of external um, verification by an authority to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so he jumps back into a time period where we are not. The, mm -hmm. the question once again is today, is the church still given birth by and sees the proper relationship between herself and the scriptures? Or is it, as Rome says, the church, the church that, that is the mother of the scriptures? Well, that doesn't make any sense in regards to the Septuagint. 
um, but even in regards to the, the Tanakh, but even in that uh, context, I would say that functionally Rome does have to say that she remains the mother of, the, of Scripture and the mother of other revelation, because no matter what you do, Immaculate Conception, Bodily Assumption, Papal Infallibility, the last three dogmas have been defined by Rome. Mm-hmm. You, you can stand on your head, you can do whatever you want to do. That was not something the apostles taught. That's not something that anyone in the early church believed by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So I think more, I'm not saying this about Trent, but, but uh, non-apologist Roman Catholics are a little bit more open to saying, yeah, that's sort of... They'll come up with a, a definition of, tra- of tradition that allows it to bring in new truths mm-hmm. that have never been known before. Right. That's pretty close to revelation. That yeah, it beca- I mean, think if you're honest about it, it it, it goes that's yeah, that's yeah. new revelation. Uh, can't trace it anywhere. All those things. So okay, but I'm trying to hold my hold my tongue here and just move forward. Sorry. My oh, no, video of Pastor Mike Winger, you do not have unanimity in the church and understanding of what the canon is until after the regional councils of Hippo and Carthage in the fourth century. So he's right if by word of God he means... Can I just very quickly say, he's only talking about the New Testament there. Mm -hmm. Um, Division continued to exist, and and this is why I addressed this on the dividing line. So point everyone to do that. That was done uh, how many weeks ago? That was... uh... (sighs) Right after he did, I mean, literally right after he put this out, but I don't... Sometime in the last I'm month. I'm old. I, don't, I, I get okay. to go, I don't know. So for everyone, go to Alpha and Omega Ministries, get the, <laughs> longer, line, get yeah. the longer discussion on that than today. Right, right. And, and, but, but this is effective for Roman Catholic apologists because of our own failure. Uh, when I say our own failure, I mean shepherds in the church. Most of our people, our people are an exception because we're both weird. Um, but let's just be honest about it. But the vast majority of Protestants... Once you get into the issue of the canon, they're just left going. Mm-hmm. Be- be- they've never had it modeled to them how to even think about these things. And so once again, I don't know if, remember we, me- if we mentioned it last time. I think we probably did. But if you really want to at least get a start on that, the hour uh, that Dr. Kruger and I did, yes, Michael Kruger and I did at G3 about two or three years ago yeah. on the subject of the canon is extremely helpful because you must remember the canon is a theological thing before it's a historical thing. That's right. And that's really important to understand. Yes. The revelation of God that was given, both written and unwritten form, such as the preaching of the apostles, that is what created the church. And you're right, the church did not say, these are the books of the Bible and created them out of thin air. The church doesn't make scripture, God writes scripture. But the church does have the authority to tell us what writings are scripture and which ones are not. And notice also in this discussion, Pastor Durbin never explains how he knows the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are inspired. He, he doesn't say, if he says, well, because I just know God wrote them, because he... No. <laughs> so, for the purposes of today, uh, and we got to get through, I think, uh, eight, seven total clips, I think, here. Um, I have plenty of other teaching online in terms of apologetics, foundational things, in terms of how do we know the Bible is God's Word, transcendental argumentation, uh, uh, but I, I don't say because because I know it's God's word. That's 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 the farthest thing I would encourage, uh, Trent, go go look online through some apologetic classes and courses I've taught on, on the word of God, how we know it's God's word, uh, but that is certainly not what the claim is being made from from me. Uh, just That's like a just cause argument. It's like, well, just cause. Well, and remember, th- this, is, this is another example of where a Roman Catholic apologist makes a challenges an ultimate 
epistemological claim without being honest about the fact that he's in the exact same boat. Mm -hmm. Because he'll say to you, I want to see from you some kind of uh, verification process that almost always requires you to be looking outside of scripture, mm -hmm. which automatically becomes uh, self-defeating. Yeah, very much so. As soon as, as soon as you say that scripture can be proven by something outside of scripture, then you're no longer believing that it's actually God speaking, mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, you can't go there. Um, but the reality is when you turn around and say, okay, how do you know? Well, because the church has been given the authority to do this. And how do you know your church is the church that's been given that authority? Mm -hmm. um, all they've done is they've drawn the line in the sand for you, and then they've taken one step back and mm -hmm. redrawn it back here. Mm -hmm. And they're almost never challenged uh, on that level because when you say, but, but, but wait a minute, um, let's look at all of the history of the, of the Roman Catholic Church and let's look at everything that's happened in the past and you know, what basis do you have? It still comes down to you making a decision on the basis uh, as a human being. Um, why, for them, why do you accept the ultimate authority of the Pope versus the ultimate authority of the prophet in Salt Lake City versus the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses in, in Brooklyn, New York, or any other group you want to go to mm -hmm. that will freely offer you an external authority? They will all say, we will be your external authority for you. So you don't have to deal with the fact that Jesus held men accountable to what scripture was without providing a quote unquote infallible um, uh, counsel mm -hmm. that they could then say, it's because of that where God sent an angel down and he you know, wrote it on the ground and there's the canon type mm -hmm. of a situation. Mm -hmm. Jesus held men accountable and that means God's going to hold men accountable to what he's provided in his word. Yeah. And he didn't do it in the mechanism they want to force us into, but that doesn't work for them. Yeah. Because you not only have that huge gap before they actually have a quote-unquote infallible determination, but even then, what Trent said, Trent the council, not Trent no. the horn. <laughs> Trent the council, not Trent not the horn. Trent the horn. <laughs> that's very confusing, Trent. I think you need to change your name. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's just not fair. Uh, but But... Why should I believe that the council fathers that met at, at Trent, why should I believe that they had some type of uh, infallible authority to um, decide divisions that had existed for nearly 1,500 years? As far as I can see, the early church fathers that had the most knowledge of the Old Testament were the ones least likely to accept the apocryphal books. Mm -hmm. So why? Uh, why, why, do I get, why do I have to overthrow Jerome's authority um, when uh, he knew a whole lot more about this than anybody at Trent did. Mm -hmm. So th these are these are questions that uh, that come up, and I said I'd be short, but I wasn't yeah. as short. No, as no, short. it's fine. Uh, this is a good resource for everybody, but I think we're going to get into more of this discussion in terms of like uh, saying this is your authority and then actually appealing to some outside of authority that usurps that authority. That mm -hmm. becomes the self-attesting authority. Right. This is important. Self-attestation is not something that people think about much. They don't. They don't. And it's really important that we start thinking about that as yeah. Christians because it is very, very, very important. Uh, and, and it's not just important for the discussion between us and Rome. It's, discussing, it's, it's important in terms of the discussion with us and the atheist, the humanist on well, the street. It's important, it's important for us in our discussion with ourselves. Our own theology requires yeah. Yeah. an understanding of that. So when they say, like, for example, just to take it outside of the realm of what's happening with uh, Trent the Horn and then also— uh, it's. When you talk about the, the atheist on the street, this is the issue. And it's like, well, they'll be like, well, I'll say, well, how do you know what you know? Well, because I use my reason, right? So, so reason is your self-attesting authority. Well, how do you know reason is reasonable? How do you know reason is the ultimate authority? Like, what, what gives you the right to say that? You're, 
you, you believe your ancestors were bacteria. Right. So where's this reason happening? Mm -hmm. Like, is it just brain chemistry happening? Mm -hmm. Like, why is that the authority? Because what's happening in your head right now is not happening in my head, two different brains. And so if it's just brain chemistry, what is this reason? Is it universal? Are these laws that are transcendent that exist somewhere out in the universe? And, and why do I have to hold to it? What and if I want to give a ground for where they came from? Yeah. Do I have to? Why don't I just create my new version of laws of logic where I say it's perfectly fine to contradict yourself? Could change tomorrow. Yeah. Maybe it changes tomorrow. Do you see the point, though? The atheist says it can't be God and his self-attesting authority. His word can't just be the supreme reference point. It's got to be my autonomy reason as a human being in this world it becomes everybody's ultimate has to ultimately become self-attesting it has to be self-attesting or it's not ultimate right so that, the, the, the issue of ultimacy whenever i listen to atheists calling into catholic answers um i'm if i had hair i would i i feel like pulling your hair out let's put it that way okay <laughs> um because when you when you they in, within the first two minutes will grant the unbeliever the very ground that will allow him to remain an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. The very the very ground that you and I will deny to the unbeliever, mm -hmm. uh, they will grant to the unbeliever. They have to because of the nature of the theology. Yeah, exactly it just right. drives me insane. I know. And I just honestly, I just don't think they've ever even listened to, to anything else. But their theology wouldn't allow them to do what you and I do anyway consistently. I've seen people using presuppositional apologetics inconsistently. Right, me too. Um, because hey, it works. Right. Uh, you just, you just. You got some good one-liners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and there time. are. Yeah. But there's a reason those are good one-liners. Yeah. Because of what's underneath it. Right. Uh, what's holding it up? Okay, here we go. Uh, and see, this is the worst thing in the world, by the way. Put Pastor James and I together at the table. <laughs> say, be fast. Not gonna happen. We're doing our best, though. Okay, here we go. So then what happens here is Pastor Durbin uh, goes on a long excursus uh, through Genesis 2 and 3 and talks about the fall of man and how essentially what happened was Adam and Eve didn't listen to God. They didn't follow what God said because God said it, and the fall of man happened, and sin entered the world. And then he takes from that that this is a teaching of the doctrine of sola scriptura. I don't see how he gets that from Genesis because nothing was written down. God spoke to Adam and Eve. So if the lesson is don't disobey the word of God, amen, I totally agree. But you can't get that because God spoke his word and it was disobeyed to Adam and Eve, from that, the word of God is confined to the written word alone. You it is directly related to the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is that scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. Sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. And as uh, Pastor James said, already in this this episode in this response uh what do we know today was from the apostles what do we have it's what is written what is written we're not talking about what um what rome talks about when they talk about tradition sacred tradition that they have so this really is an epistemological part of sola scriptura and what makes it uh the doctrine that it is is the core issue here is it is the what we're already talking about self-attesting authority ultimate reference point. And when you're talking about what happens at the very beginning of our Bibles, at the very beginning of the story, you have the same conflict we're in right now. It's just a different version of it, but it's the same issue. God speaks. And what does he say? He says this, but not that. And, and you know, you say that's an excursus, Trent. This is because I'm developing the foundation of the doctrine from the beginning of the Bible. God says this, but not that. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Well, why, why weren't Adam and Eve allowed to say but why? Right. On, on what basis, God? I mean, this place is all new. 
I mean, new trees, new animals, new me. You know, you just you did this thing over here. I mean, how do, how do I, tell me why. Is it because I'll get fat if I, if I eat it? Like, is, is, is there some reason? So what's important here to notice is that when you talk about the epistemological foundations, at the very beginning of the Bible, God doesn't appeal to anything outside of himself. He just says this, but not that. The day you do, you'll die. That's it. There's no external sort of on this basis because of this reason. And Adam and Eve are not in a situation where, oh, I, I say, I believe in this, I say, you know, like, what if Eve uh, actually is like going, well, you know, this may not taste good. You know, I'm not going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm to eat it because it probably doesn't taste good. And well, she'd have external obedience. Right. She didn't eat it. But actually, it was sinful because mm-hmm. she was not eating it, not on the basis of God's self-attesting word. She had some other reason for not externally, you know, obeying. As the creature, she was trying to become independent. Exactly. And so the point is, is like, what if she says, well, I won't eat it because I'm going to get fat or it's going to taste weird. You know, I'm just not into that fruit. Uh, I don't like durian fruit. I think that the, the fruit of the fall was durian. They shouldn't have touched it anyways. Uh, durian is a nasty. I think it was kale. Stinky, disgusting fruit. <laughs> I don't know. Humans are not after, supposed after, to eat. After, hearing, after smelling my wife making kale chips in the kitchen, it yeah, was, it, was it was had to be kale. Had to be kale. Uh, so whatever the reason, here's the point. This is a core issue. It is very, very important. When God speaks at the beginning of the Bible, he says this, but not that. That's it. He says, the day you do, you'll die. So Adam and Eve were supposed to obey, supposed to obey that command on the basis of what? Their human reason? Was, was that supposed to be the standard? Well, let me think about what God commanded there. Right. Well, here's the ins and outs, and here's the consequent. And I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe it's because of this reason. You know, no, they're supposed to just obey. So what comes into the garden is another voice. And what's the voice challenging, ultimately? It's hath God said. Did God really say, no, 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 this is not what's going to happen to you. You see, God doesn't want you to take of it because he knows your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so here you have, in the beginning of the Bible, this epistemological collision that is the grounding um, of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, and there's more, but... This is the issue. God says, he speaks it on his self-attesting authority. Here's another voice. So the issue is, is the collision of voices. God says, he says. God says, you say. The test is on the basis of what did God say? And isn't it inter- interesting? No infallible interpreter necessary in that situation. And, no, and no, no, no counsel that gathers to define for Adam and Eve what the canon of God's revelations actually are. Uh, they are supposed to... Uh, Somehow God's ministry to them is sufficient in of itself. And there is also no foundation for what many um, Christians do, many Christian apologists do, and basically say that there is a natural law argument to establish the authority of Scripture itself. Right. Um, It's from the beginning, Adam and Eve are dependent upon revelation from God. Right. Uh, That's that's vitally important to point out. Very, very much so. I get that at all. Okay, so there's not that. All right, we'll go on to the next one. Actually, that was a short clip. Good. Okay, here we go. God says, if even the wonder comes to pass, however, the prophet or dreamer of dreams leads you after other gods, gods which you have not known, that's how you know there are false prophets. So again, here's another example of that classic contrast in Scripture, that conflict You've got the voice of God laid down as the foundation, and the other voice must be tested by the previous revelation. It's in the garden. It's in Deuteronomy 13. How were the people of God to know 
whether this prophet or dreamer of dreams was representing the true God. Here's the answer. If they lead you after a different God, different from how I've revealed myself to you, that's how you know they're a... So the point here that I'm making is, as I'm moving away through Scripture, again, this was not an exhaustive um, uh, course or lecture series on the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Uh, again, if you guys want some, some very powerful, extensive study of this, get William Webster and David King's works on uh, Sola Scriptura. Uh, uh, forget the title of the books again. Just escape Holy Scripture. Uh, the gr- <laughs> William Webster, Sola Scriptura. Look it, look it up. You'll, you'll find Foundation it. It's a three-volume set. There's some good stuff in terms of the fathers there. There's good stuff in terms of developing a doctrine, doctrine through through Scripture. But but here's here's what I was demonstrating in terms of epistemology related to the issue of Sola Scriptura, which of course acknowledges that there were times in history where something wasn't written down yet. The revelation of God is the point. Sola Scriptura, again, is based upon the nature of Scripture as theonoustos. It's from God. And then the next thing is the origin of Scripture is the Holy Spirit of God is carrying people along to say what they said or to write what they wrote. Uh, but the issue here is in terms of how does this develop through Scripture? What do you see God holding people accountable for? How do you see the people of God instructed in terms of testing claims? Because you've got, at the very beginning of your Bible, you've got God says, Satan says. Then you have God says, and then false prophets say. And so what I'm doing here in this is demonstrating the principle that it is God's revelation that becomes the starting point. It becomes the reference point for all these questions. And what God does in Deuteronomy 13, uh, 1 through 5, is he actually gives his people a test in his law, and he says, look, this prophet or dreamer of dreams comes, they have signs and wonders, uh, so it looks legit, but they lead you after other gods. That's how you know that they're a false prophet. Why? Because even if you have the miraculous ministry happening, it looks legit. The test was based upon God's revelation. God's revelation was the core issue there. And it wasn't, there was no point being made by me here, Trent, on uh, the single issue is, is the nature of God. So if a prophet denies the nature of God and how God's revealed himself as God, that's how you know they're a false prophet. That wasn't the issue. It's the principle. God has spoken. You test prophets, dreamers of dreams, people who have visions. You test them by God's previous revelation of himself. And so that was the issue. God's revelation stands supreme. And so here's what Trent says. Prophet, now watch. How does this work out in our conflict in the world? But this doesn't prove sola scriptura. All it's saying is you can accept something as divine revelation if it doesn't tell you to worship another god. Well, Catholicism doesn't tell people to worship some other god. We disagree on on how to worship the true God. But even here, this argument wouldn't, from a Protestant perspective, even invalidate the Catholic faith. So it's, it, we said last time that he does seem to have in the back of his mind that if we're talking about Sola Scriptura, we're talking about Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And while that was absolutely definitional in the Reformation, right. um, it's not, th- this does illustrate something because for us, this has remained central because it defines the parameters of how we can do theology, how we can answer. This answers the questions about why he was so shocked when you talked about addiction or uh, analyzing th- theories of government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like Scripture, what, 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 what are you talking about? Right. And from their perspective, they got the church to do all that kind of stuff, even though right now they're probably wondering about that given uh, the uh, Frankie the Marxist. Um, but, uh, yeah. but, but we... We have continued because of Semper Reformanda, mm-hmm. because there has to be continuing reformation. Well, there has to be a source for that. So there has to be an external voice that the church is 
hearing and not in a mere monologue. So it, it has become definitional for us, but it's not for them. And so I understand from his perspective, we're the church, you're in rebellion against us. So if you're talking about Sola Scriptura, you must be talking about us. Right. Well, in, in, in the sense that it's important in talking about Roman Catholicism, yes, but Eastern Orthodoxy and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and in our own uh, self-definition of our own, own beliefs, yeah. it's, it's vital in, in all of these things. So you are just simply giving a, a, a general principle and he focuses in upon what the specific was. We're not saying you're saying, we're not saying that you're teaching a false God in the sense that you deny the Trinity, though I would certainly say that, your, your, that Rome's epistemology could allow, I mean, you're getting pretty close when you got the bodily assumption of Mary. Yeah. You're getting really close. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons they haven't defined the fifth Marian dogma, even though popes have taught it as doctrine, mm -hmm. it hasn't been defined as dogma. There's a difference between the two. Uh, the concept of Mary as co-mediatrix, co-redemptrix. Uh, co co yeah. um, uh, so, but what if that was? Mm -hmm. I mean, that really starts getting pretty close to some serious um, conflict with the, uh, an orthodox doctrine of God. Yeah, yeah. Once again, you're going back to scripture of a warning against idolatry and forsaking God to trying to drive sola scriptura into the verse. And that's simply what it doesn't mean. It's just saying uh, you can accept someone as a prophet if they don't lead you away from the true God. Otherwise, if you have it that, oh, well, you can only accept someone. Do you really believe that, Trent? I'm, I mean this to you in the most friendly way. You, you really believe that, that that's the, the issue God was aiming at there? That, that as, as long as the issue of they had the right God was right, and God was perfectly fine with anything else the prophet was saying, so they could have a false view of worship. They could it could be bringing things into God's worship that offended him. And just so long as they get me right, right. like the worship is fine. Do you really think that's a principle God is teaching there? I don't believe that you believe that, Trent. I, I actually found this as, as, as one of the weakest uh, responses uh, to that text itself, because I, I don't believe that Trent really believes that, that what God is saying there in his law is that prophets are to only be tested based upon what they say about God and his nature. Just don't lead him after a different God. Everything else, ollie, ollie, oxen free, baby. They're, they're no problem there. The principle there is God has spoken. The prophet can't lead you after another God. God's already given his revelation as the grounding. The people of God were to look to that revelation to test the prophet. And it had more, it was a principle there that is, uh, has more to do with than just the issue of uh, God. Prophecy, if it already perfectly corresponds with the revelation that's already been given, what do you do if God wants to give new revelation? And we'll talk about that a little bit when we talk about Acts uh, 17, when we get here towards more of the, the end of the video. Well, I would say if God gives new revelation, and he does through the course of redemption his, redemptive history, if God gives new revelation, he is not a God of confusion. He's not going to contradict himself. God is not going to do that. So all the new revelation that God is giving, uh, God is not a God that changes, is not going to subvert or contradict the revelation that he's given previously. So that test still stands. And by the way, it was a test that Jesus applied in his day to people who were uh, teachers of the law who had what they saw as essentially a divine tradition, something from God in terms of the Korban rule mm. and all the rest. And it's something that you see worked out in the lives uh, of the apostles. Uh, it's not, not, a, not a good argument, Trent, just not a good argument. Yes, we believe that God continued to give, con continued to give further revelation and redemptive history, but that principle the people of God had in terms of the revelation of God we have previous to this has to be the reference point to this 
to this claim or that claim, that still holds. And so that's really not an argument with Sola Scriptura. And that's what I'm saying. When I hear things like this, I think Trent hasn't really engaged with solid Protestants on this issue and reformers who, who have been writing on this for yeah, a very I mean, long time and in very, very uh, extensive so, so as, as a professional apologist, then we could hold him accountable for doing that. But at the same time, um, if he's just simply talking to Protestants as he goes out and does talks, that come to his talks, um, how many of them do we expect to have done the same reading? Right. No, uh, I agree. Probably very few. Yep. Also, I want to say I've been hearing little kids shouting in the background. I say good on Pastor Durbin. Love seeing kids at church, by the way. Uh, if your church isn't crying, your church is dying. So keep bringing the kids, people. So good on you all for that. I will give you props for that. I hate, I just, I, I have little kids. So I hate when people give them stink eyes when they're making age appropriate vocalizations. If they're crying their head off, take them outside. But they should be allowed to make an age appropriate vocalization. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Age appropriate vocalization. Are we going to start? Are we going to put that in the in the bulletin now? Um, <laughs> that's actually. I uh, like how Trent said yes, that. Trent, yes, make sure that age appropriate vocalizations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Trent, thank you for the uh, for the uh, the blessing there and the compliment. Um, yes, we and I. I will say uh, just as a side note uh, to that wonderful uh, compliments. Uh, the reason we actually have family and integrated worship is because of uh, our commitment to what the scriptures say about worship and. Those sorts of things, and so, uh, but we appreciate that, and we agree with you. If you're not crying, you're dying, and uh, that's seen in a lot of churches. And I, yeah. I, I do, I do have, I do have a problem. We probably been in, in great agreement here, Trent. I do have a problem uh, with even a lot of the uh, just, just the popular methodology of sort of just grabbing the kids and saying, "All right, out of worship and go to your kids' group." And uh, right. I got a real problem with that. And uh, these kids at Apology at Church are incredible. I mean. They can beat the adults with catechism and the oh, verses yeah. they're memorizing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, when people say, like, kids can't handle that stuff, uh, come to our catechism competition this Sunday right, and watch these right, kids do the catechism right. questions. There's like, we're up to like 20. Where and, are we at now? And where were you guys? Were you guys in, uh, I think you were, you were in uh, Ireland. Or were, were you there when I, when I, when Marley helped me with the. Uh, I was there. Okay, you were there. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a picture floating around Facebook of, uh, I just. Uh, I just got to be good friends with little Marley when we were up in Salt Lake City last yeah, time. Right. And she had some orange hair. Right. And so she was looking about, I don't have any. And so I was asking if I could have some of her carrot hair. <laughs> and so we got to be friends. And well, now she has green hair. Right. And uh, so she was really easy to find. So I was like, would you like to help me give the benediction? So there's this picture of me and Marley. And I didn't ask her to do this. But but we raise our hand when we when we give the benediction. So she's he's raising she's, with you. Yeah, she's got her hand up yep. there, and she's she's helping with the benediction. So yeah, it, it only, you know, I came from a church that was very 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 quiet. Yeah, um, really really quiet. And so it took about two weeks, and then until someone's just screaming their head off. You just don't really notice. You don't really it. notice it. We no, just you, don't. you get used to the kids, you know, kind of moving around and drawing pictures and listening and right. and I will say just quickly to that, it's funny. You'll see kids that are sort of like drawing pictures and you know it's like an hour long sermon generally at apology at church. Yeah. Um and the You even you've even ruined me on that too. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what'll happen is the hour long sermon and you get like, "Well, what are these kids really getting out of the service?" and you talk to the parents 
about how when they go home or that week They're when the kid it. will say, you know, uh, Pastor James said such and such, and I think uh, that was really interesting. Or, you know, it's like six, seven-year-old kids mm-hmm. that captured this really, really important point in the message. Yep. And so I think it's important for us to get our kids back into church so they can hear uh, the gospel itself, and they can also be instructed and discipled uh, there. So, okay, thank you, Trent, for that, that blessing. Here we go. That's the foundation of Sola Scriptura. Scripture is the breathed-out revelation of God. The origin of it is the Spirit of God carried people along to write what they wrote. It is the very voice of God, God speaking. Quick thing, you know this, you've heard it a lot from this pulpit. When Jesus was in an early controversy, what did he say? He said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What does the Lord Jesus do with Scripture? He equates the reading of Scripture with God speaking. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So the Word of God can exist in a written form and an unwritten form. Thanks, I, I agree. That's the foundation of um, Sola Scriptura. Sorry. Scripture. Thank you, Trent. I'm glad you do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, not in, but not in a way that's at all meaningful, because uh, when you say it is in an unwritten form, you're talking about a period of time that you're not alive. You and I aren't, aren't living in that day right now. The question is, where is the Word of God now? And officially, you agree, the canon's closed, uh, no more apostles, technically no more revelation. But if you then turn around and say, but there's this oral form, we've been challenging since the Reformation, since Calvin wrote to Sadaletto in the middle of the 16th century, we have been challenging Rome. Okay, you, you talk tradition? Let's see it. Give it to us. Where, give us the book of tradition. Where, where, where is it? Um, what, is, what is the content of the old tradition that has been passed down from the apostles? Why do we have to wait for some kind of... Because just think about what has been defined by Rome as dogma since the days of the Reformation was not something they were arguing about at all. There was nobody, you know, the bodily assumption of Mary. Were there, were there uh, Catholic monks that believed in that, that? Yeah, probably. But the idea that that was a part of the oral tradition that Paul had delivered to the Thessalonians? No way. Mm-hmm. And so what you have in the vast majority of instances today is Roman Catholics adopting uh, the Newman idea of the acorn and the tree. And so what they can do is say, well, there was this uh, almost like protoplasm tradition <laughs> delivered to the Thessalonians. And then over time it grows and matures and, and we can discern things in it. This is a this is a really fancy schmancy way of saying we get Latter Day Revelation. Mm-hmm. I mean that's just really that's really what it is. Yes. Um, because if Paul didn't teach this to the Thessalonians, then that doesn't fit into into the text. That's right. Uh, that whole oral tradition uh, the, by word of mouth or by letter. That's first of all, it's just about the gospel contextually. That's that's all it's about. How do we know what the gospel is today? Are you telling me the New Testament does not define the gospel? Obviously not. Um, but that's what it was about initially. And if you're going to use it, then you're going to have to say it was actually taught to the Thessalonians. None of this stuff was. Mm-hmm. It's just historically you know, not verifiable. That's right. The Apostles' Formula. Have you noticed? Just look at Book of Romans. The Book of Romans. Read the first four chapters of the Book of Romans. And notice how the Apostle Paul, an inspired apostle, actually buttresses his point. How does he, well, how does he demonstrate his point? Not on his own authority as... A lot of charlatans often do. What do they say? Well, this is true about God. Well, how do I know that? Because I'm speaking for God. Because I know. Because I'm the prophet. Because I'm the leader. I'm the one who's given this, I've gotten this revelation on my authority. 
What's the Apostle Paul do in Romans? When he is making his point about the gospel, he actually points where? To the Old Testament revelation of God. And he says what? What does the scripture say? He roots his arguments in the words of the living God. The reason Paul does that in Romans is to answer a hypothetical Jewish interlocutor who says that Paul is not being faithful to the covenant that God gave to Abraham, for example, to talk about uh, the importance of the law and the covenant that was given. Paul routinely cites the Old Testament in Romans to show a continuity between the covenant that was given to Abraham, for example, and how that covenant is fulfilled in Christ and how we are justified by faith in Christ and that a Christian does not have to become a good Jew first, that a Gentile can become a Christian without having to become a good Jew and being circumcised, for example, by being baptized into Christ by dying and rising with him. But then, uh, so what Pastor Durbin here is saying, that even Paul, he, he, go, he goes to the Word, to the Scriptures, yeah, to answer his Jewish opponents. But Paul didn't feel that way, that that was necessary. Go to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Here, what does Paul say? Does he say, what I have from you is exactly what was already given in the written word? It'll go back to Scripture, and here's my authority? Nope. Here's, here's where, where you really, where the rubber meets the road. We are not saying that there is, when we were talking about the consistency in apostolic teaching with the Old Testament revelation, I almost jumped in and decided, I, I was actually trying to be disciplined, but yeah, you know how well that works. Um, <laughs> The fulfillment themes of the New Testament, extremely important. Mm -hmm. The New Testament is, is glued to the Old Testament by fulfillment. Prophecies, the, all the themes of redemption that then come into full fulfillment in the New. But the New Testament is not limited to fulfillment. Um, so some people would say, for example, that Jesus can't really be God because well, you know, you just had a, he was just supposed to be the Messiah. He was only supposed to be this, only supposed to be that. Clearly, uh, part of the mystery that had been hidden from ages past was the whole idea of this, this you know, this Messiah is the God-man, and we are going to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one body, and oh my goodness, this is, this is we're going to go all over the world, and this is, this is cosmic reconciliation and, 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 and everything else. So, we're not saying the New Testament cannot um, have amazing um, motifs in it. What we're saying is it's both. They have to be connected by fulfillment. And then that fulfillment, though, cannot just be limited to looking at Old Testament categories. Say, well, it can't go past anything that we, that we have here in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of Jewish apologists will try to argue against us is saying, uh, you're just missing all this messianic stuff. You're, you're reading stuff in. It, it just couldn't, couldn't possibly go that far. Mm -hmm. So what you still have here, though, is, is Trent's trying to argue that, that in essence, when you're, when you're looking at sola scriptura, that what we somehow are saying is that there was no place for the apostle to say, this is my gospel. What he's saying is my gospel was prophesied. It is consistent. There are fulfillment themes. But it goes beyond that to the fact that Christ has, has given authority to us to accomplish these things and to do things that, well, let's just put it this way. When Paul is arguing in Romans against Jewish interlocutors, as he said he was, mm -hmm. why do you never see him 
drawing from non-canonical sources to make his authoritative points. That's my point I wanted to make. Paul knows the Mishnah, what we would call them. Now, that's, an, that's an anachronistic phrase mm -hmm. for anybody who doesn't know. The Mishnah is codified between 200 and 250 years after Christ. Um, so it's extremely important for us in a knowledge of what traditions existed in the days of Christ, but we have to be careful mm -hmm. because it is a little bit after that time, period of time. The Mishnah is then commented upon for centuries, and then the Mishnah with its, with its Gemara, the commentary, becomes the Talmud mm -hmm. in the various forms that exist in Babylonian Talmud, so on and so forth. Um, so there were all sorts of sources mm -hmm. that Paul could have brought in as authoritative at this particular point in time. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that all he could do was he just simply had to repeat Old Testament text. He did that enough. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that he couldn't use other words to express things, tie things together, as the apostles frequently would bring uh, citations from multiple Old Testament prophets together into one fulfillment passage or something like that. We're not saying that that's a, anything. He's basically trying to say, if you really believe in solo scriptura, then you wouldn't be doing those things. No, that's, that's a misunderstanding of where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that, uh, <clears throat> Trent, you're, you've made my point for me. When you demonstrate that he's, he's arguing with, at, at some points in Romans, an, an imaginary Jewish interlocutor, right. you're making my point when you say that. He's arguing with, and so on, on what basis is he arguing with the Jewish interlocutor? He's saying, what does the scripture say? Mm -hmm. So for Paul, his mindset is in these moments where he's, where he's doing this imaginary debate and it's, it's coming through in the text, what is he standing on as authoritative? What does he know as the punch, the, the delivering the punch to the, the questioner? Well, what does the scripture say? Well, God says this. And so here's how you know my gospel is consistent because the scriptures say. So saying, well, he's really just having a discussion with an imaginary Jewish interlocutor about whether or not, you know, the covenant is consistent, whether you have to become Jewish to become Christian, those sorts of things. Well, the point is, and I'd say there's more going on there than that, but uh, the point is, is for Paul, what's the, what's the position to stand on? For him, he's saying, what does the scripture say? Here's what the scriptures say. That this is what God says in his word. So he's deriving his authoritative punch in those, in those moments there from referring to what does the scripture say? And I can't remember where this is at in the sermon, but I th is this in the section where I was talking about the Apocrypha? I'm not quite sure. Maybe we'll just continue not, this. Not 100%, but I, I know. See, his, his response to you, though, was, but in Galatians chapter 1, he's saying he didn't get his gospel from the scriptures. He got his gospel by direct revelation, which, mm -hmm. again, uh, but Paul's argument was his gospel is by direct revelation, mm -hmm. that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he was the Jewish Messiah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that that remains consistent with what the prophets had said in the fulfillment motif. But he's specifically talking in that context in Galatians chapter one about the fact that he was under attack in the churches in Galatia as to what his apostolic authority actually was. That's right. And since it was supposed to be derivative, or they were saying was derivative to somebody else, then it was secondary to their own. He had the same situation with the Corinthians, the super apostles, yeah. who were claiming to have a higher authority. So what do you do in that context? That's a completely different category. What now you're talking about who's truly an apostle and who isn't, right, right. which is a different different issue than what we're and dealing with here. It has to be pointed out in Galatians, uh, that very short letter. Um, his the the his argument that he makes is by referring to scripture and the consistency of 
of that issue throughout the text. And he mm-hmm. goes back to Abraham and he goes back to Sarah. He talks about the two covenants. Mm-hmm. And so what is he doing? He's referring to scripture as the grounding. And so it's not just on the basis of because I say so. He's, right. The whole point is there is is his methodology is consistent with what the scriptures say about how do you know. And not only, I did find, it's sort of ironic that he would use Galatians because uh, wasn't that Pope Peter that, um, that he slapped upside the head uh, there <laughs> oh, in chapter right. two and right. in front of everyone said, uh, you're not walking straight in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's what it was. Uh, so yeah. Right. Speaks from his own authority. Uh, he actually does what Pastor Durbin says he doesn't do, saying, I'm the prophet speaking for God. What Paul says is, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So that Paul the authority- does receive revelation from God, claims to receive revelation from God, um, and that somehow destroys your point that when uh, writing to the Romans, he demonstrates the consistency of that revelation with the previous revelation. Mm-hmm. Trent didn't understand the argument. Yeah, I don't think he understood the, the, the issues. Well, but, he, but he's also trying to make us shoehorn solo scriptura mm-hmm. into a period of revelation right exactly. that's that's just that's that's all through it doesn't work neither the lord jesus or the apostles ever quoted from the apocrypha with the divine formula of what does scripture say anything like that were they aware of the apocrypha of course they were did they quote from the apocrypha at times never with the divine formula they saw it as sometimes useful historical information the apostle paul even quoted from Aratus of cilicia and epimenides of crete these are pagan poets and prophets It's not saying that they are actually inspired. But in Scripture, when the apostles are appealing to something as true, they say, what does the Scripture say? Next. Uh, This is a separate debate on the inspiration of the deuterocanonical books of Scripture. But it goes back to a point Pastor Durbin was making earlier about, oh, where's the canon of Scripture? Who decides it? Did the Church decide it? How do I know? And he never answered the question. But really, for Pastor Jeff and most Protestants, they know the canon of Scripture because their pastor and their parents told them this is the Bible. That's their tradition that they've inherited. So I would just say, mm, well, my dad, my dad did not tell me. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if what he's saying is the vast majority of Protestants have never given thought to the canon of Scripture, just like the vast majority of Roman Catholics have never given thought to the canon of Scripture, that's not a disputable point. That's that's obvious. Right. Um, but the 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 real issue is where does canonical authority lie? And uh, as I said in my response to him on the deuterocanonical books. Uh, this is this is where you have to understand what the can is. It's an artifact of revelation, et cetera, et cetera. I won't repeat that here, but I, I will I will say I agree, not regarding you, but I would agree that most Protestants have 66 books because they've never read anything but those 66 books, and it's a tradition. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be. It should be something that we teach on our churches, we do, I do, you know that, um, but that is the case. And it's the same thing with, I mean, I've, I've, I've almost never met a Roman Catholic who had any idea how many people in the ancient church rejected the apocryphal books as canon scripture. Almost met none of them that knew that Pope Gregory the Great specifically excluded the books of Maccabees from the canon of scripture. Didn't know. Didn't know what Jerome, didn't know that Melito Sardis, 
had inquired of the Jews in Palestine and recognized these books were not ever considered canonical. No. So, yeah, the issue of the canon, unfortunately, is one thing that, surprisingly enough to me, the vast majority of people on both sides don't. They, they are running solely on traditions. That's no, right. No question. So we are almost done here, but real fast, I need to take a bathroom break. Carmen, can we take a break? And uh, Or do you have commercials lined up, or should I just turn on some music and we take a quick break? Wait a minute. I'm I'm almost 16 years I'm 16 years older than you are. I have, a, I have a juice here, and then there's... there's well, that's, that stuff is just... I don't even know what's what, in there. What, with this? No, the other stuff. Oh, the yerba mate? It's yeah, that all just, good. That just, yeah, it's okay. so good for you. Carmen, are we good on taking a break? All right, guys. So what we're going to do here is just stay with us, guys. Quick break. We're going to come right back after this break. We're going to finish up the last three quick clips. We'll have you guys out of here in no time. Stay with us, guys. Go to ApologiaStudios.com to get more. Uh, all the radio shows, episodes, podcasts. You can go to All Access with us to partner with, with us in the ministry. Get the TV shows, the after shows, Apologia Academy. All that's there for you guys. You can partner with us to make everything we're doing possible. We'll be right back, guys. Hey guys, welcome back to Apologia Radio. Get more at ApologiaStudios.com, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A Studios.com. You guys can go there, sign up for all access, partner with us in ministry, and uh, be a part of all that we're doing. Everything you're seeing on Apologia Studios, the evangelism videos, anything on our uh, Facebook platform, that is all made possible. Everything is because of you. So thank you guys all so much for that, and you get access to all the additional content. So go to ApologiaStudios.com to partner with us in ministry. All right, here we go. We're gonna go. I just wanted to mention I I didn't leave my seat during during the break. I just thought people should know that you did leave your seat. I saw you. You, well, you had to go to turn off the fan that you left on. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. I, okay, <laughs> oh, my bad. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, I was just just pointing out that you know yeah, some of us can sit longer he's than others. Stronger than me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love. I think I've said this before. Uh, Pastor Luke has the same bladder issues that I have, and so oh. I love going on long trips with. Pastor Luke, because I, I never have to worry about him complaining that I have to stop again. <laughs> my children and my wife are always complaining. We do a trip to like California and they're like, you literally just stopped 20 minutes ago. What's wrong with you to see a doctor? Um, but I, I love traveling with Luke on airplanes because I can say, hey, can you get up again or whatever? And he's like, no problem. I got it because he has to go too. So, all right, here we go. True We're going to try to get through this. We're, we said we would. We're going to do it. We got three more clips to okay. do here. Here we go. This so was uh, minute 41 on this one. So. All right, let's jump ahead here to the end. Um, what Pastor Durbin does next is he talks about the Corban rule, Matthew 15, Mark 7. And, you know, Jesus says, you make void the words of men by your, by sorry, you make void the word of God by your traditions, traditions of men. Jesus is not condemning all tradition here. He's condemning... Nobody said uh, no. that, that's, that no. that's our position. As Catholic answers have struggled in this for a long time. Yeah. I, uh, Mark Brumley came and spoke in Phoenix sometime in the 1990s, and I attended, and I hit him with this exact same text. Mm -hmm. And they, they still haven't developed a good response to it, mm. because I, I don't think there is a, a good response to it. Not a consistent Because one. the reality is the Jews believed this was a divine tradition. Mm -hmm. They believed it was past death. They had the exact same epistemological claims to the Corban rule that Roman That's Catholics have for their traditions the today. The they point. believed that it was passed down from Moses orally through the great teachers, and therefore uh, eventually ends up codified in, in the Mishnah. Uh, tractate of both is where you can find that, that particular material. Uh, the point is they believed it had divine origin, right. and Jesus held them accountable 
for testing anything that they believed has divine origin in tradition by scripture. That's right. And that's all we're saying you have to do with Rome too. Yeah, exactly. That's that's sola scriptura. There isn't a good response. No, there really here is. From no. their perspective, because this is where you see the epistemological collapse. Yeah. Uh, through the ministry of Jesus and a direct conflict that is uh, parallel mm -hmm. to their position. It has to be embraced. And Trent, when you say things like, uh, he wasn't condemning all tradition, we go, Duh. Who's, who says that we're, that's the claim? No one's ever claiming that Jesus. Okay, okay, a fundamentalist. Well, okay, yeah, agreed. So, but that's, we're, we're not talking about that. So, uh, but, but the fundamentalist doesn't recognize that they have traditions as exactly. well. So there's the collapse exactly. of their position. Right. Right. Uh, so, so Trent, you're talking to, to believers uh, who, who accept the fact that, that you can have tradition and traditions can be healthy, but we would say those traditions have to be consistent with Scripture. They're not on the same level of Scripture. Uh, so that's not really an argument against our position uh, to say, you know, Jesus didn't say all traditions are bad. It's very important to point that out. Not even condemning extra-biblical things that the Pharisees added to the Old Testament and saying that they're wrong just because they weren't found in the Old Testament. What he was condemning was a interpretation of the Old Testament that was of human origin that said you could choose to not support your aging parents by giving your money to the temple. How is that an interpretation of the no. Old Testament? It's no. not an interpretation of the Old Testament. It was a tradition. Tractate of both specifically says it's a tradition that came from Moses. Mm -hmm. He says not interpretation, your tradition. That's <laughs> Bingo. Trent, Trent, my friend, there's just there's there's not going to be a a, uh, a a clear a um, consistent uh, response to this because it is parallel to your position. And this is how Jesus handled it, a divine tradition, something handed down, something they revered, saw as divine tradition. Um, and he says to them, he says, you make void the word of God through the sake of your tradition. And I think uh, you need to consider that. As an offering, a korban or korbana. And so you didn't have to support your parents. Jesus said, no. The Old Testament says, honor your father and mother. If you don't give your money to help your parents and give it to the temple instead, you have made a vow you should have never made in the first place. It was invalid. You should be supporting your parents because that is what God said. The debate was not about God says this and the Pharisees said that. The debate was over what did God mean by what he said. That was the concern for them. And Jesus showed the correct interpretation. No. No, no, no. That's, uh, no. It was a this and that. It was, it was exactly this and that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is what God says. You invalidate and... the word of God, not you twist and, and right. distort the word of God. You invalidate it for the sake of your tradition. Yeah, it's as, it's as clear as it needs to be. Yep. ...of scripture in that regard. So it was not about all traditions are bad. It's about Strong nobody man. nobody said, said it. that. That's right. Whether uh, they were uh, properly understanding what the Word of God was. So when Jesus... She, he... Thank you. I'm so glad you said that. Were, were, were they, with what? Their tradition, properly understanding what God actually said. And so what did Jesus... Yeah, what does Jesus drive him to? Here's what God says. Here's what you guys are saying. Here's what your tradition says. And so, Trent, you're right. And I want to say this. This was, this was important, because this was one of the limited times during the standalone message where I'm actually dealing with a specific text to say, guys, here's a grounding for this in the life and ministry of Jesus. How does Jesus handle what people saw as a divine tradition? You have to do this. This is from God. Here's how Jesus handles it. He contrasts. This is what God says. This is what you say. And so you may void the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And, and here's a moment where Trent has an opportunity to really engage with something that is, that is, that is foundational. And it's a very, very bad response.
It's very poor. It's a bad response. It's uh, it's not helpful, not coherent. It refutes nothing. And so I think that this needs to be paid, paid attention to. I thought this is one of the most, more important points of Trent's rebuttal because here's where Trent has the opportunity to actually engage in a meaningful way to show exegetically, contextually, historically, here's the situation. And so, Jeff, you're wrong. And Trent can't do it because there's really no way to really maneuver out of these circumstances that Jesus was in. It is a parallel uh, to what uh, Rome will claim for itself. And you see how Jesus taught us, the master taught us to deal with human tradition. The people saw his divine in origin. Uh, and he says, God says, you say, you make void the word of God. So never said tradition is bad. He said the traditions of men, your, your traditions, he said. And we could apply that to you. Trent, your traditions, your traditions that you see as from God, your traditions, God says, here's the inspired revelation, here's what's in scripture, and here are your traditions. I can line them up the same way, Trent. I can take scripture. I can say, take uh, Romans chapters one through, uh, let's say five, and I can lay that down. I can take Trent and I could say, okay, let's put them side by side. Here's what God says, and here is your tradition. I could do the same thing. And it's in principle the same issue moving forward with the Lord Jesus and what he taught us about these circumstances. Trent, you, you have to embrace that this is something that you have to really, really face down and deal with the text itself. Uh, this I didn't find at all helpful or meaningful. Because there are traditions that are of human rather than divine origin that contradict the Bible, that doesn't mean all tradition is bad anymore. Which means he's assuming that there are traditions that originate from God that are consistent with the Bible. So he, he has to keep open the oral tradition external to Scripture category. Mm -hmm. When Jesus is saying anything that is claimed to be from God mm -hmm. has to be subjected to this. Mm -hmm. So you don't have an equal, you, don't, you just can't have that equal category. That's right. And there are writings that are of human origin rather than divine origin that claim to be divine. And here's the, here's the final response here. How do you know those writings that claim to be divine in origin are truly divine? How do you know? How did, how did Jesus uh, give us, uh, what test did he give us to know whether this was a divine tradition or not? And for him, the reference point was, God says this, his law says this. This is what your tradition says. You've made void the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And so, Trent, I think you're right on that point. Like, not, not all tradition is bad. Praise God for that. Good. We've got those two. Consistent with Scripture. That's what we want to uh, yield to. But that's a good point to make. Like, how do you know if this human tradition is divine in origin or this, this claim that humans have made over here is divine in origin? By what does the Scripture say? That was a test the Lord Jesus gave. And that is an application of the doctrine of sola scriptura. And it's an important one. And uh, it's one that uh, Trent did not respond in a helpful way to. Uh, we are two away now. Here we go. Next one. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. So here you have, in the early formation of the church, an inspired apostle appealing to what is apparently an early Christian creed. That's what they were saying to one another. They were saying this. They were confessing it. It was something they were passing along as a tradition, but it was a tradition that was rooted in biblical truth, and that was do not go beyond what is written. Another example. So first, I'll just address this. 
you have me acknowledging here that whether somebody agrees with this particular uh, application here of this or understanding here, and we can talk about this in a second here, you have me acknowledging uh, that there were early traditions that were good traditions. And so my, my point here is if Trent, if you listen to the whole sermon the whole, t- whole way through, the argument we make previous to this in terms of Jesus isn't saying all traditions is, tradition is bad, as though that were coming against us, um, you, you have me here acknowledging that there were early traditions that Christians had, creeds, confessions, they were passing along, um, that were good, that were very healthy. Uh, and so you know that we believe that. But addressing this issue of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, um, this, I want to just go ahead and go on record here, is not me uh, saying, and here is, the, here is the proof text of proof text and the ultimate, and this is the grounding of all of sola scriptura, uh, it's not. Um, there, uh, I recognize there are people who would say that we really don't understand quite what Paul was talking about here, and does it relate to the issue of sola scriptura? What was he referring to here? I want to acknowledge right off the bat this particular one I am fond of, and I think it's an important one, but not everybody agrees with that, and it's definitely not the grounding of sola scriptura as a doctrine. Right. Right. Um, I'm not aware of it being used uh, in the Reformation, um, uh, and as we mentioned at, uh, at lunch a few, few weeks ago, I said, so Jeff, have you ever heard me use that? Nope. And you said, nope, because uh, <laughs> you got that from another source that we both know and both respect and so on and so forth. Yeah, I struggle with it simply because, especially in the context of a debate, you have to be able to establish the background parameters with sufficient clarity to, to give your exegesis uh, power. Mm-hmm. And I have simply not seen uh, the evidence that this is a early tradition um, that is being referenced here. There is a lot of discussion as to what is being referred to here. Um, And so just simply on a, could it be, could there have been this type of a statement? Okay, but I can't prove it in debate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, it's it's sort of a non-starter for my utilization of it within that context. But even then when I wrote the forgotten, uh, or the uh, Roman Catholic controversy, uh, texts like that where I was I had did have more room and I could have developed more things like that. I just uh, have never. I don't have anybody that I can follow outside of Greg Monson who's who's used it in this in this fashion. He used he used it with Mattatix. He did in his uh, radio discussion and, debate. And you could tell Jerry had never never heard, heard of that. He before. was like, oh dang, never. I don't know what to say to that one because never. <laughs> maybe that was yeah. So well, that all that proves is that Jerry, as a PhD student at Westminster, had never heard it used that way either. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I will say, and I'll just I'll just go ahead and grant uh, the point here, uh, and just note that this wasn't in a debate right. situation. This was me standing in front of our church, developing some things, uh, foundational pillar things, and I I, I I have this one. I like it. But we uh, hadn't we hadn't discussed it either. We hadn't, and it's also not the reason I believe in sola scriptura. I believed in sola scriptura long before mm-hmm. I ever had uh, this understanding of this particular verse. Right. Uh, but I'm not sure that Rome has infallibly defined what this verse teaches anyway. Well, so. uh, <laughs> most people would say they haven't infallibly defined anything, but seven <laughs> verses at the most. So yeah, Right, exactly. That ain't one of them. That's my point. In Acts 17, verse 11, Scripture pays a compliment. God in his word pays a compliment to the believers in Berea. Why? It says they were more noble-minded than the ones in Thessalonica. Why? Because when the Apostle Paul came to them, an inspired apostle with authority comes to them, preaching to them, it says what about them? They searched the scriptures daily to do what? To see if what Paul was saying was true. So the Berean Christians were saying, Paul, what's that? 
Okay, what's that? And then they were going to the word of God to see if what he was saying was actually true. More noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were testing the words of the apostle Paul. How many of us, if Paul came in here right now and started preaching, you would just be like, like just, just take it all in and not thinking critically, ultimately, right? Just accepting. But they're like, well, hang on now. Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me see. Let me, well, they were like this. Let me see. Let me, let me see. Where, where does it say that? They're testing what the apostle Paul says. Okay, final points here. This is a common misunderstanding of Acts 17.11 that Protestants use to promote the doctrine of sola scriptura. So when Paul says that in Berea, that the Bereans were more noble-minded, it says because they searched the scriptures daily. It's not because they searched the scriptures to confirm what Paul said and that they practiced sola scriptura. It's that they gave Paul a fair hearing. And to know that, we have to think, okay, if what was... A fair hearing based upon what? This isn't answer this doesn't answer the problem from my perspective when he says they were just giving him a fair hearing. A fair hearing based upon what principle? Right. What does the scripture say? Right. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now in in the in Greek and it's it's interesting. Um they were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica because and then all the rest of the phrase cannot be chopped up into pieces. They were more noble minded because they received the, 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 the word with all diligence daily uh, examining the scriptures to see whether those things were so. So you can't say, well, they were more noble simply because they were willing to listen and then cut off that last part. Mm-hmm. That last part is descriptive of the means by which they were receiving the word. Mm-hmm. And the means by which they were receiving ton logon was that daily they were examining the scriptures to see whether these things were thus, whether this was, you know, thus saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so their noble mindedness included being willing to hear, mm-hmm. but what cannot be separated from the regular examination and testing of the message delivered by Paul mm-hmm. on the basis of Toskrafos, mm-hmm. the scriptures, the, the written word. Yeah, I think these particular points of Trent's discussion and his response were the most helpful, I thought, because it's where he's giving his rebuttal and his real response to the text itself. And this is where I think you start to see the wheels come off. I mean, as respectfully as I possibly can mean it, uh, you don't see any any really meaningful interaction with the text at this point. I think you see sort of a, a wave of the hand and an attempt to just sort of Get the eyes off the fact that the point is being made here, that what they were doing was searching the scriptures daily mm-hmm. to see if what Paul was saying was thus, whether it was so. And, um, and saying things like, you know, they were willing to give him a fair hearing. All right, a fair hearing upon what basis? The scriptures, that's where they were going. Yep. Noble about the Bereans was that they searched scripture. What's noble about that? Was it because they didn't want to believe something false, so they, did, they practiced an ancient form of sola scriptura? No, to know what was noble about the Bereans, you have to look and see what was ignoble, what was what was bad about the Thessalonians. And what was bad about the Thessalonians was not this would support sola scriptura if Paul went and he preached to the Thessalonians and they just accepted whatever he said gullibly and Paul said you are gullible, you should compare this to the Old Testament. That's not what happened. Paul preached to the Thessalonians and then some of them Jews and Gentiles were converted but others were not, and they started a riot and drove Paul out of town. They didn't give him a fair hearing. So when Paul goes to Berea, he preaches. 
Some Jews and Gentiles are converted, but guess what? They don't start a riot. They gave him a fair hearing. That if this was a message about Sola Scriptura, it would compare the Thessalonians' gullibility in receiving a message without comparing it to the Old Testament. In fact, the Thessalonians, some of them who did not accept Paul's message, probably said, hey, Paul, you're saying the Messiah will rise in three days? That's not what it says. It doesn't say that anywhere here in the Old Testament that he will be crucified and rise three days later. It doesn't say that here in the Old Testament. You're, you're a fraud. You, you are, uh, you know, you're leading us away from the true God. That would be an extreme application of Sola Scriptura that says the Word of God is only found in the written Word and could not have been preached by the Apostle Paul. Uh, straw man there again, we're not, that's, that's not what we're saying, but what we are saying, uh, and what cannot be escaped from the text, is that the phraseology of daily examining the Scriptures to see where these things were so, to see where these things were so, is somewhat of a uh, paraphrastic translation. But the, the point is, that the with all willingness they received the word with all willingness is specifically described as being daily examining the scriptures to see where these things were so that's where the that's where the willingness had its origination they were more noble-minded because they had a better epistemology yeah they were people who examined the scriptures mm -hmm. and he's not wanting to allow that standardization um, and then wants to go to well, but 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 you know Paul preached the word of God. Well, we we believe he preached the word of God. That, yeah. That's not the issue. The issue is there's going to be a consistency. And we're not saying they were practicing sola scriptura in the sense that we practice sola scriptura because there's continuing revelation going on at that particular point in time. Mm -hmm. But they are now encountering the New Testament revelation for the first time, mm -hmm. and they don't just simply go, ah, oh, we're not going to worry about what came before. Whatever you say, mm -hmm. uh, no they recognize that this message claims to be consistent with what has come before. Yeah. And so they're not going to their Jewish traditions, they're not going to the Korban rule, they're not going to the Mishnah, they're examining what is being said according to Tos Grafas. And we know what, we know what the Grafas was uh, at that particular point in time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, and it didn't include the Apocrypha. Well, I think it's important, yes, and that, it's important to note, and we'll end on this, I think what's important about that passage in particular, and which really hasn't been touched here, is the heart in the doctrine of Sola Scriptura was what was being applied there with the new revelation of that new covenant in history was being given. It was, it was in process. It's, it's coming from God. We're saying that, of course, it was coming orally from God. We don't have the new covenant documents yet, scriptures written down yet. And so, but what were they doing in the midst of new revelation coming from God? They expected to be consistent with what came before. There you go. All scripture is theonustos. They knew where it was. They knew what it was. They could appeal to it. And so even with new revelation coming from God, they recognized, well, this is the previous revelation. If this is new revelation from God, there's got to be consistency there. They understand the principle and that's and that's the point which that, is why if you're going to be a Berean you should never believe in most of what Rome has defined yeah. as being based upon tradition uh, including the bodily assumption of Mary or papal infallibility or any of these other things as well very good alright guys thank you guys so very much for watching and for listening make sure you guys share this acro across social media thank you Trent uh, for doing the response and allowing for the dialogue and the conversation uh, deeply respect you and just grateful for the opportunity to talk and to get to some of these important uh, discussions uh, Dr. James White Alpha and Omega Ministries A-O-M-I-N dot O-R-G is the website Alpha and Omega Ministries on YouTube and on Facebook I really want to highly highly encourage 
the last couple of weeks of the dividing line, and in particular, I want to highly encourage what's in line with this discussion mm-hmm. is Dr. White's recent response, two parts, uh, to Hank Hennegraaff, uh, Hank Hennegraaff's and a guy named Nathan Jacobs. Yes. Um, critique, attack on the doctrine of Sola Scriptura from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. You're going to see a lot of intersection here uh, because we're dealing with the same principled issues. Uh, very important. So good stuff. Go check it out. There's hours and hours of content there. You guys will get on this particular subject. And, of course, go into the archives, YouTube, James White, Sola Scriptura, debate, listen <laughs> to his debates, many debates. See what it looked like 30 years ago. That's right. Yeah, see him with hair. You'll yeah. see him go through different stages of uh, scholar, <laughs> weightlifting, scholar nerd stage yeah, to yeah. big buff uh, weightlifter to yeah, where he's at now. Uh, so go check that out. Don't waste those resources. Devour them like I have. Uh, pick up uh, Dr. White's book on Sola Scriptura, uh, Scripture, Scripture Alone. Uh, and uh, it's available through AOMN.org now or just Amazon. Ama- Amazon. Just go to Amazon and get it. And uh, encourage you guys all to go to ApologiaStudios.com. Make sure you guys go sign up for all access. And if you guys are part of a local church context that wants to bring justice to the preborn, you want to preach the gospel, save lives, go to EndAbortionNow.com to get free training, get free resources, and join us on mission this year as we not only save lives at the abortion mill, which is happening on a daily basis, but also we're bringing the gospel to our legislature, demanding immediate justice. Uh, pray for Oklahoma right now. Unfortunately, Senator Joseph Silk's bill that would establish equal justice and protection for the freeborn was killed by a pro-life legislature. Believe it or not, it was. A uh, simple equal justice bill. And it uh, says a lot. If you want to know what that means, go to uh, watch on YouTube or on Amazon Prime. Babies are still murdered here. It's free on YouTube and on Amazon Prime. Get a big picture context sort of thing to that discussion and that issue. We will catch you guys right here next week, Lord willing, if Corona doesn't get us or the or if we're not locked into our homes yes. uh, by government mandate. Uh, we'll catch you next week right here on Apologia Radio.